Let's turn now to the scripture lesson, which comes to us from the book of Acts. The first, but before I get there, actually, I wanted to say this before we get to the scripture, as the choir's coming in. I wanted to say and acknowledge that, of course, tomorrow is Memorial Day. It's a day in this country where we remember and give thanks for the men and women who gave everything they could, gave even life itself to fulfill their mission, which was to uh, save and protect the rest of us. And then later on this week, there's another very special day celebrated all over this world by Christians. It's Ascension Day. It's a time when we remember what happened on that day, 40 days after Easter, when Jesus, in front of the eyes of his disciples, was lifted up on a cloud and went into heaven. And as he was leaving, right before, he says to his disciples, now you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the world. And so today we're going to hear that text again and listen to it coming to us from the book of Acts, as I said, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Listen for God's word to you today. In the first book, Theophilus, that I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. By the way, this is written by Luke, the author of the Gospel of Luke. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He's talking about Pentecost. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel? He replied, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up to heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy God, we pray that you'll grant us the eyes to see and the ears to hear and the hearts and the minds to understand your word and your world this day. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing a lot of people want to know when they hear that passage is, did it really happen? You know, did a cloud somehow magically drop down from the sky and, and, and like an, a celestial elevator lift Jesus up to a place we call heaven? 
Now, if you're a biblical literalist, everything in the Bible is true, then you'll probably say, yeah, it happened just like that. And then you get all tied up in knots trying to figure out all the dynamics of how it could possibly happen. Or you just say, well, it's a mystery, but I know it happened because the Bible tells me so. Or, if you're a bit more skeptical or scientifically minded, you'll say, there is no way on earth it happened because people just don't fly around on clouds. You leave it at that, and then you never get around to the question of why that story is included in the Bible in the first place. You know, there's a very common misconception that we, we have, a lot of us, that people who lived and, and wrote 2,000 years ago were pretty much totally irrational and superstitious and they couldn't tell the difference between fact and fiction, right? So we modern folks have got to come along and demythologize everything in order to make sense of it. See, we want just the facts, ma'am, pure and simple. But you see, that is our problem, not their problem. Because our assumptions of what it counts as a historical fact or how you're supposed to write about histor historical facts or write history, all those assumptions, we've only had them for about the last 300 years as the idea of modern history was created and then has been given to us. But ancient authors had very different standards for how to record the truth of an event. And sometimes they would use poetry, sometimes they would use parables, or they would exaggerate certain aspects of something that happened, or place an event in a broader symbolic context or framework. So, in telling the story of the Ascension, Luke, 30 years after the events, mind you, 30 years after the events, Luke is, is doing something to place the event in its proper context. He is not trying to write or compose a Palestinian physics textbook. He's using the idea of Jesus being lifted into heaven on a cloud in order to make two crucial points that he wants everybody who reads the gospel to get. First, it just so happened and was accepted in the Roman Empire that when a Caesar, the current Caesar, the current emperor, when he died, his spirit at the moment of death would fly off into the sky. And there were even people who swore that they saw it happen. And that was taken to be proof that the Caesar who just died was now becoming a god. And so that the Caesar who would come after would be called what? The son of God. Second, in the Hebrew Bible, in the, the book of Daniel, the prophet Daniel has a dream where he sees someone come down on a cloud from heaven, someone he calls the son of man. And in the dream, God gives the son of man all glory and power and authority to rule on earth as the Messiah, as the anointed one of God. And then, amazingly, this son of man turns around and he passes on 
all of his power and all of his authority to his disciples. And then he rises back into heaven on a cloud. So what's happening here is that Luke is taking two very well-known images from the time that anybody who heard the gospel in the original 2,000 years ago would have picked up that he's taking one idea from the Roman Empire, he's combining it with an idea from the Hebrew Bible, and he's doing it to proclaim that Jesus is the true Son of God and not Caesar. And that like the Son of Man in Daniel's dream, Jesus has now handed over his earthly mission to his disciples. Now, it's a mission we pray for all the time, right? We just did. We say, you know, we pray that God's kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven, right? And that means that when we say the Lord's Prayer together or by ourselves, we're, it, we're not just trying to get the words right, however you say them, right? And I hear lots of different versions, believe me. We are praying in such a way that when we say those words, they become our vision, our longing, and our commitments. In a way, they're our marching orders to join in the unfolding story and in the continuing work of establishing God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. British pastor Steve Chalk writes this about the kingdom of God. He says that the kingdom of God is simply another way of talking about what life would be like if God were king. If God's will was done here on earth, rather than the will of the financiers or the marketeers or the politicians or the media. And the will of God, he writes, is simply this, that every person, every community, indeed the whole of creation, should flourish free from oppression and have the opportunity to enjoy and to live life well the way that God created it. And that's the point that Luke's getting at, too, in his story of the Ascension. And it's clear in what happens next. Right after Jesus sort of you know, floats off into the sky, two men dressed in white, we would call them angels, they appear to the disciples, and they say this. Hey, Galileans, get your heads out of the clouds and get your eyes set on the path you have in front of you to fulfill your mission the mission that Jesus just gave you, to be his witnesses, in fact, to be Jesus wherever you go, whatever you do. Now, I don't know about you, but I know for a fact that I fail at that mission all the time. I fail at it. And that brings me to a story. It's a very, very old story. Its roots go way back to the Middle Ages in Europe. And the story begins, it's on Ascension Day. And just as Jesus is lifted up on a cloud, these two angels, the two men dressed in white, they run after him and they say, wait, wait, Jesus, we're coming with you. And so they jump on the cloud. And they go up with Jesus towards heaven. And he says to them, yes, friends, you've done a very good job. 
And one of the angels replies, well, that's what we should say to you because you've done all that was asked of of you. But what happens next? Isn't there more to be done? And Jesus answers, well, of course, there's always more to be done, but weren't you paying attention to what I said down there? Didn't you hear me give the Great Commission? Now they will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the two angels look at each other kind of quizzically and they they say, and they look back to Jesus, one of them says, yeah, we heard what you said, but haven't you been paying attention to those people down there, what they're doing? I mean, do you really think that they're going to fulfill the mission that you've given them? What's your backup plan, Jesus? What are you going to do if those you've left behind don't continue your work? And Jesus pauses for a moment, and then he simply says, there is no backup plan. There is no backup plan. Because you and I and all of our brothers and sisters in faith all around this world and through time, we're it. We're the plan. But if that's true, what on earth are we supposed to do? Well, for starters, just what the angels told us, or what they told the disciples, get our heads out of the clouds and get down to the business of following Jesus. So, for example, we just read the first 11 verses in the book of Acts. It's a long book. That's just the first 11 verses. Do you know what happens in verse 12? Okay, I'm going to tell you. That's the prompt I needed. Um, What happens in verse 12 is that the disciples, they sort of get off the hill and they go back to where they were in Jerusalem. And, And you know what they do? They set up a committee. They set up a committee. And as often happens in committees, they decide to run some numbers. And they realize that now that Jesus is, or sorry, now that Judas has died, he killed himself, now that he's dead, they're missing a disciple. They have to have 12. Because in the Old Testament, God chooses the 12 tribes of Israel to dwell in and to work through in the same way that Jesus in his mission chooses 12 disciples to, to, to dwell with and to work through. These disciples know they have to have 12. And so they, they sit down, they pray about it, and they select a man named Matthias to be the 12th disciple. Which shows you that numbers are important in the Bible. And committees are too. Because the kingdom of God, you see, actually gets real in the trenches of everyday life, in the stuff that we're all familiar with, whether you've been on a committee or not. Whatever you're familiar with, that's where the kingdom of God comes into effect. Sometimes if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, William Booth, William Booth was the founder of the Salvation Army. And I know some of the members of our congregation grew up in Salvation Army families. And in the last speech William Booth ever gave at the Royal Albert Hall in London in 1912, he ended with this statement. 
while women weep, as they do now, I'll fight. While little children go hungry, as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. Wow. Those are powerful words. And they're true. Now, of course, you don't have to march off now and go join the Salvation Army or think of yourself as a soldier in order to be a Christian. And honestly, you know, I don't like the term Christian soldier. It just doesn't do it for me. But if it works for you, that's great. Whatever it takes for you to get your head out of the clouds and get on with the mission to offer forgiveness for the past, new life for the present, and hope for the future. And you don't have to go to the ends of the world to do it. So a couple of weeks ago, with some of you, I was down at City Team Ministries in downtown Oakland, and we were serving dinner to a bunch of homeless folks. Maybe about 100 folks came to, to sit with us and eat. And it was this thing we call uh, um, Cafe Hope. And you can come and join us in a couple of weeks if you want to participate. And I met a guy down there who had a Detroit Tigers baseball cap on his head. So I went over, I was serving his table, homeless guy, and I, I go up and I say, hey, are you from Detroit? He says, no, I only wear this D on my hat to let people know that my name is David. Okay? So we talked a bit about his life and and spent some time together. And I could tell he's a really sharp guy, really smart, you know, kind of one of those people you meet on the streets who you're like, how did he wind up on the streets? And then a couple days later, I decided to do something that I've been thinking about and planning about doing for quite a long time now, is to set aside some time for myself every Monday from about 10 to noon uh, Monday morning and go down to my old church, which is First Presbyterian Church in downtown Oakland, 27th and Broadway. And every Monday, including tomorrow, they serve lunch to about 100 people from the streets. And they give out food and they give out all sorts of supplies to people. And I, I'd love it down the road if some folks from our church would join too in that ministry. Anyway, I was down there. And I'm, I'm in a, you know, serving line, and I have a, a spoon in my left hand and a spoon in my right hand, and I'm serving, uh, you know, chopped salad with one spoon and fruit salad with another spoon, and, and doing this as the line goes, and I, I see a guy with a Detroit Tigers baseball cap on his head. And I say, hey, David, I saw you last the other day down at City Team. How are you doing? And then he said something to me that I will never forget. He said, hey, pastor, you get around. And honestly, the first thing that came into my head was that old Beach Boys song, which we're not going to sing together this morning. But then I said, yeah, I, I try. I try to get around. And sometimes they do. 
And I know you do too, sometimes. But what really gets me around, what really keeps me going as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus Christ, amidst all the craziness and all the darkness and all the division and all the bad news that seems to surround us and penetrate our hearts and our minds and our lives all the time, what gives me hope is that I'm not alone on this mission. Not alone. I wasn't alone in that serving line at the church. I wasn't alone in waiting tables at City Team or anywhere else that I am. Even today, as I'm preaching, I'm not alone. And neither are any of you. Neither are you. We're all in this together. And that's how Jesus gets around too. St. Augustine wrote that Jesus departed from our sight in order to return to our hearts. And he did. But not just our hearts. He's in our whole bodies, too. And in our actions. And in our interactions. And you know, I can't help but imagine what would happen if the 2.2 billion Christians on this planet ever got our heads out of the clouds of division and scandal and doctrine and pettiness and pie in the sky, and we got down to doing our mission to be Jesus to the ends of the earth. And that was the plan. That is the plan that Jesus has given us as disciples. Because 2.2 billion human beings, empowered by the Holy Spirit, can physically get around to so many more places to bring healing and hope and salvation. They can get around, we can get around so much further than one single solitary Palestinian carpenter, as holy as he is. He needs you and me to embody him. He needs us to spread the word that the gospel is not just an evacuation plan to get us human beings off of this awful planet and into heaven. The gospel is a transformation plan to bring a bit of heaven down here to earth one person and one day at a time. So tomorrow, on Memorial Day, I invite you to join with me in remembering the mission of those who gave all they had to save and protect us. And as we come to Ascension Day, remember the mission that we all share together in Jesus Christ, to give all we have, as much as we can, to serve and protect one another. In Jesus' name, amen.